There are unsurprising and surprising things about my favorite city to visit. Unsurprisingly, Las Vegas has more hotel rooms than any other city in the world, somewhere north of 150,000 of them. What about the world's largest observation wheel? If you're thinking it's the London Eye, you're going to be surprised. But if you bet on Las Vegas, you won't be surprised that the high roller outside the Link Hotel takes this prize. It probably doesn't surprise that the Las Vegas Strip is reputed to be the brightest spot on Earth, clearly visible from space. But it might be surprising to learn that the Las Vegas Strip isn't in Las Vegas. It actually sits immediately south of city limits in the unincorporated towns of Winchester and, wait for it, Paradise, Nevada. Now, the food. It is no surprise that Las Vegas built a reputation around cheap buffets and 99-cent shrimp cocktails, with ingredients coming into the Mojave Desert from anywhere and everywhere. But the culinary scene has been changing, and the scope and scale of that change just may surprise you. Heritage breed meats, small-scale local farming, plant-based restaurants, innovative food recovery systems. It's been far too long, hasn't it? Let's get back to Las Vegas. Talking to chefs, and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. You're listening to the Chef Demoni Podcast. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Thank you for joining me. It is Friday once again, and we are back on the Chef Demoni Podcast. And here we are for episode 51, which somehow seems appropriate for a Las Vegas discussion, doesn't it? Could have called the episode Area 51, I suppose. Anyway, if you are new here, welcome. Cheftimony is a podcast about food. I used to cook professionally years ago, but now that I've returned to work full-time as a lawyer, this podcast is my way of staying connected to the culinary world. My guests on Cheftimony are usually chefs and food-loving lawyers, and today I have an interview with two Vegas-based chefs that I really can't wait to share with you. I first heard of Lorraine Moss and Louis Victa because of their wonderful podcast, Two Sharp Chefs and a Microphone, which I discovered thanks to another friend, Chris Kim, mentioning it on his great podcast, Faces and Aces Las Vegas. And I'm so glad I found Two Sharp Chefs. Lorraine and Louis launched their podcast to honor Anthony Bourdain, who expanded our knowledge of cultures and people through his work. You'll hear Louis explain today that she and Lorraine are not really looking to step into Anthony's shoes, but doing their part to help fill the gap that his absence has created. Two Sharp Chefs brings you raw and honest discussions on chef life, the hospitality industry, and of course, on the Vegas food scene. It's just great, and I highly recommend that you check it out. While both of the hosts have worked as chefs, Louis is also a professional food photographer, a recipe developer, a food stylist. Her mix of work really sounds amazing, and you'll hear me trying to apply to be her assistant today. Lorraine is a journalist and storyteller with a serious background in journalism, including some time as a television anchor. And you'll hear from her today how dealing with awful subject matter as a journalist ultimately helped her to decide to tell stories in a different context, the world of food. Put Louis and Lorraine together, and you've got one great podcast. These two met working in the kitchen at Bazaar Meat in the Sahara in Las Vegas, and this is a restaurant I absolutely must visit. You're going to hear about it today. 
We talk about mentorship in the culinary world, the current shortage of skilled cooks, and then we get into some aspects of the Las Vegas food scene that might be surprising. We talk about heritage breed meats and how they can benefit both animals and diners. We talk about where to find great plant-based options in Vegas, food recovery, small-scale farming. We've even got a little bit about what the Las Vegas Raiders are up to on the culinary side. You're going to hear about how and where to eat like a Las Vegan, and of course I'll put links in the show notes so you can track all of these places down. Now, one of my goals on Cheftimony is to have chefs share kitchen stories with all of us, and Lorraine shares a great one about a guest asking that his steak be cooked in a way that didn't really excite the chefs in the kitchen. Then he wanted us to melt cheddar cheese over the top of it. After, Ooh, after it gets it, better, mm, oh, with or, a or side, <laughs> with a side of ketchup. There is more to that chilling story toward the end of today's episode. Plus, and I did ask for it. Louis shares a war story with us. This is kind of just like a PSA to everybody out there: just be really nice to your service staff and uh, ah. you know your cooks. <laughs> you said war story, man. <laughs> well, I did. Yeah. I did. Fair enough. I got what but, I asked for. Thank yeah. you. I think. Just, wow. <laughs> just be kind. You know, be kind. Yeah. If you're brave, you will want all the details from Louis' public service announcement. That is coming up toward the end of today's show. All right. It is time to get to Las Vegas. Oh, and because it's Las Vegas and we've got some chefs talking, there are a few explicit words in today's episode just so you know. Here we go now. Join me for my talk with Lorraine and Louie, the two sharp chefs from Las Vegas. Lorraine and Louie, you are both joining me from my absolute favorite city to visit, which is Las Vegas. Thank you for being here. Thank you for setting up this Zoom meeting. Thanks for being on Cheftimony. Thank you. Absolutely. We're really excited. Me too. So you're both Vegas-based chefs, and I know that each of you has some other pursuits too, and I definitely want to get into those a little later in our talk. But maybe let's start with Vegas. What is going on now with the food scene? How are things shaping up in terms of pandemic and recovery? What, what is the scene looking like? Well, it's coming back. It's actually, to me and, and Louis, she's out there on the streets a lot because she also does a lot of shooting at restaurants for eater. Um, but for me as a diner, I feel like it's like coming on really strong and really quickly. It went from, you know, just being so, you know, so slow and so dead during the weekdays and, you know, still busy on weekends, pretty much the whole time, almost the whole time. It was still kind of busy on Friday, Saturday, Sundays here in Vegas. Um, cause we're that kind of town, but weekdays, I mean, I was out like the last couple of days and downtown Las Vegas and the Strip are crazy busy again. It was just like overnight. It's people, they change the restrictions in Nevada. They change the restrictions in other places. And suddenly it's all breaking loose again. <laughs> Everybody's ready to go. Yeah, it seems there is, to state the obvious, pent up demand to, oh, to Vegas sure. again. Mm-hmm. Louis, what's your experience been? Well, my experience has been, well, COVID weeded out like a lot of restaurants that were not tough enough to survive or like uh, have evolved per se, to survive um, the closure. And now the ones that are surviving and or have developed and are open, now they're like, whoa, like, yeah. 
balls to the wall busy. Yeah. And there's like this whole labor shortage too going yes. on. Cause um, like we might want to talk about that because there's a lot of people that are are just sitting on unemployment because unemployment pays more than their wages sometimes, you know? Which is or a whole other problem. That. Yeah, yeah, which is a whole other problem. problem. So there's and then there's there's like people like me who have moved on from working in a professional kitchen. So there's a lack of skilled hands right now. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of places opening. So everybody who wants a job can get a job right now in Las Vegas. Super yeah. competitive. We're, we're seeing the same thing here in British Columbia. And, and I think the pandemic has only exacerbated that. And to your point, Lorraine, I think that is a it's a such a big issue, but let's dip our toes into it a little bit. I've always thought that there's just such a huge connection between competitive pricing in restaurants and the ability of restaurants to pay living wages. I, I don't know that we're going to solve this problem today on this particular podcast, yeah. but but thoughts on that? I, th- I think we as consumers just have to be prepared to pay more for real food. We just had this conversation um, with a, a mentor of ours, Chef Mary Sue Milligan. She's huge in America, actually internationally. Um, she's one of the two hot tamales from like old school food network. <laughs> she's my mentor personally. And we had this conversation and she made an interesting point about that. Remember, Louis, she was talking about how people, we as chefs and restaurateurs and hospitality community members, we need to somehow educate the consumer better when it comes mm-hmm. to paying for quality products, whether that's quality meat, quality vegetables, paying more to get. It's like that old adage. You know what I mean? You get what you pay for. Right. And I think maybe this problem might even be more so in America and in, in the in the States where, you know, for, for so long, especially Louis and my generation, um, our families and, and the way that we ate was just, you know, whatever we could do to get like things on a budget and as cheap as possible and like as fast as possible. And it's just funny now when I look and I think about what I ate, I talk with the, my husband about this a lot as well. It's like the things that we ate were so crazy and so overprocessed and uh, uh-huh. so cheap. And, you know, it, it's, uh, interesting now how our generation, especially younger generations are really thinking about where does their food come from? And, and they talk, they think about farms and they think about small businesses and all these things that I know that you want to talk about as well. But like, I don't think that there was that, I don't know if it's demand or even just thought, or maybe they just weren't educated about the fact that you get what you pay for when it comes to food. And if you want to eat well and you want to live well, then you're going to have to pay more. Yep. And that also parlays to like paying your staff more because um, 100, because I just feel like, you know, kitchen people and cooks, chefs in general are artisans. And they're not just like a warm body that clocks in and out and, and flips up meat patty on the grill. People, people who actually work in kitchens learn as time goes on and they get better at what they do. And they, they put out a food of like a certain standard. So I guess it's only fair to pay them correctly. Yeah. Right. I, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I, I wonder sometimes if part of the problem is that people are artisans and care so much and that provides this weird incentive to like, you know what, I'm not getting paid to stay late and, and clean up and help with prep the next day or, but people do it right. And there needs to be, I'm not sure what the answer is again, but I think there needs to be systemic change. I spoke to chef Jenny Dorsey in New York a couple of years ago and, Mm -hmm. and she made the point that 
there's an opportunity and I think maybe a responsibility for larger operations, right? For these places that have the budget to take the first step and start paying mm-hmm. people better because Absolutely. it's like Absolutely. independent restaurants are operating on a shoestring as it is. Right. Mm-hmm. There needs to be, there needs to be change all around. People are, I feel like more aware and, and maybe it, you know, because it's hitting them the way that Louis was talking about, which is suddenly nobody can hire anybody. And it's funny because well, not funny, haha, but funny, interesting <laughs> that Louie yeah. and I are constantly in conversations with chefs, you know, whether it's through Louie out in the streets shooting, you know, photos or me like dining at restaurants or me like talking to people in different places and writing stories about food or on our podcast, especially every single time we have a podcast, either on air or off, they try to reach out to us and to our audience about, Hey, I have openings. Like I'm looking yeah. for great Do you employees. know anybody? Like, and it's yeah. funny. It's like, we hear the same question over and over. So we don't know how to help them, you know, aside from, you know, sending the message out to culinary schools and the younger cooks who are really, you know, hungry as well to just get into the business. But Louis makes a great point. She's making a point about how people like us, they're going to be really hard to hire a lot of people like us back again, because it's not only the fact that a lot of people, cooks, dishwashers have made more money in unemployment, which is going to run out very soon. But it's also, you know, everybody reassessed mentally and emotionally during this pandemic. (laughs) We've all gone through so much. And I think so many people, you know, that were treated so badly, whether it comes to pay or like yelled at and screamed at or taken, taken advantage of, you know, holiday wise or days off or whatever. It's the same people all the time, you know, that, that end up coming back into the kitchen or stay in the kitchen for 80 hours a week, they're like, screw it. I don't want to do this shit anymore. I'm <laughs> sorry. I don't know if we're allowed to swear. Absolutely. <laughs> you are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's a cooking they, show. Yeah, exactly. Um, they're over it and they're looking for other ways to use their skills, you know, whether it's through ghost kitchens or, you know, starting their own businesses or doing test kitchens, which is like a big thing here, test and ghost kitchens, you know, where they're trying to do their own thing because, they want to be respected and they want to have quality of life and balance. Which so. um, the, the hospitality industry really doesn't provide, especially in the old model of it. Oh my God. Yes. The old no. school model's terrible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. And there was that always has always been that weird badge of honor, which thankfully is changing now of, yes. I think the old guard was like, well, I worked 80 hours a week, so you're doing it too. And it's right. Yeah. Time to move on. Well, well, let's talk about what each of you has done outside, you know, still connected to the culinary industry, but in, in different ways. And Louie, maybe you could start. I know you're uh, a food photographer, you're a food stylist, you're a chef as well. Tell, yeah. us about, tell us about your work in the food and beverage scene. <laughs> so, yeah, this is something I fell into. I'm also a recipe developer. I fell into that during the pandemic. Because suddenly, like, oh, you have skills. You can take photos. You can actually cook. You know your stuff. Let's uh, let's pitch you to this company. And so I, I develop recipes for uh, Bon Appetit, for International, Anova Culinary, the sous vide people. Right. Wow. Yeah. So it's pretty exciting. I'm always busy. I'm always tinkering in my kitchen, just sourcing out nice ingredients, putting together some stuff, and making sure that these recipes are, like, home ready for, like, the home cook, basically. For the home cook. So, wow. Yeah. So interesting. I also shoot for Eater. I travel a little bit for Eater, just scoping out like food in the desert or food in St. George, depending on whatever kind of like assignments they have and stuff. And then I'm, I'm, I'm out there. I'm out there a lot. This is what I observed during the pandemic. There's always an opening. And I get scared because during the closure, there were places that were opening 
and they were big places too. And I'm like, who's going to fill your dining room? But yeah, I'm out there a lot shooting and just like taking a pulse on like all the new concepts that are coming up. And it's, it's really exciting to be out there. It is exciting. I think of all the people I've talked to, what you just described sounds to me like the perfect job in the food business. This I, sounds know, right? so fun. I mean, I know every job has its warts and I'm sure there's early mornings and late nights and frustrations, but if you need an assistant, let me know. <laughs> right. I know. I'm like actually at the point of growing because I, I do own my own food photography business as well. So I'm, I'm open I'm, for projects, large, small, whatever. Yeah. In between. Yeah. I've seen some yeah. of your photos. They're beautiful. Thank you. Louis is multi-talented. No kidding. It is a blessing and a crutch. The blessing yeah. is all the stuff that she's talking about. And the crutch is that she's never available for anything else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, right. Which, which makes me doubly glad that I've booked this time with both of you. And Lorraine, tell us about your background. It's super interesting having made a switch from a career myself into cooking. And now I've sort of regressed back into the into office land but you started or at least came from a, a a pretty serious career in journalism and then transitioned into cooking tell us about that so pretty much my whole life i remember being a 5 year old making um videos about being on the scene of crimes and stuff and to <laughs> me it sounded exciting you know as a little kid and i would you know back then you didn't have you know the thing where you could reverse the frame so i had to like <laughs> keep running back and forth to check if i was you know on the screen and i'd make chalk drawings on the ground of like bodies and stuff like this is a five-year-old really I really did this and I have those videos uh, we should probably use them Louie they're pretty funny <laughs> but like so I thought that this was what I was going to do for the rest of my life and you know I had all I had an intention to do so but as I got older and you know as I realized that it has it had to become less about telling stories which is really the main thing. I love the writing aspect of it. I love the human interest side of it. I love getting to know people and bringing that knowledge to other people about because we all have these things in common. And it's honestly what makes us happy. And what what makes us beautiful is like different kinds of people that we can tell these stories about people and share them. Um, but it became less about that. It became more about just money. And it, it always goes back to money. And I know it's a cliche, uh-huh. but it got to the point where it was selling stories to to the bosses. So, okay, awesome. I love that story. Great. It's it's a great sell, but there's a shooting down the road that I really need you to get to. So maybe your story can come tomorrow or later in the day, or maybe in your spare time. Oh, wait, there's a kidnapping. Oh, there's a fire. Oh, there's a car chase, you know? And it was just like, oh, it was stressful. And it hit ahead actually when I was in the Bay Area. So I had worked so hard and I'm sure you know that you know, you kind of start small in the news business and in the journalism business in a small market. I actually started in Iowa of all places. And then you move up through the ranks. And I had gotten to San Francisco, which is my hometown. And it was the number one station in San Francisco. And I was getting paid really well. And there really wasn't anywhere else to go except network. And I hated my job. Wow. And not because of KTVU, because that's a great station. I actually loved my bosses and my coworkers, but I, I was at, I won't even say what it was, but because it was just so it like gives me chills thinking about it, but it was the worst possible thing that you could be at, you know, just abuse of a child that was just absolutely just horrible. Mm. And everybody was there, you know smoking cigarettes and hanging out and telling stories about their lives and gossiping about people. And I'm sitting there going, 
I can't do this anymore. I just can't do it. I don't want to be this person, you know? And, and honestly, I don't blame some of them because you need to compartmentalize in that business in order to survive. Right. Um, so these, these were your colleagues who were smoking. And I guess they're, they're just that much more detached from it. And not everybody, but sure, I just, fair to see even yeah. two, three people oh, doing yeah. that. Yeah. And, you know, in a big market in a place that I thought I would enjoy, it was just, it, it was like, I don't know. I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. I wanted to cry. And of course you can't cry in a setting like that. And so when I got home, there was just so much to unpack that I just exploded to my husband (laughs) and he was just like, you know what? You don't need to do this anymore. Right. (laughs) And it was, it was as much as that. And, and after crying and a couple of hours of conversation, he asked the question that everybody should ask, which is what would you do if you were paid no money at all? what would you do with your life? And my life would consist of cooking. Like I loved cooking from the time I was born, multiracial, multicultural. So I switched to being a chef. I went to culinary school and it happened pretty quickly after that. And then away you go. And was that, was culinary school back in Vegas or did you come to Vegas after? So we were both living in the Bay area. He had followed me there. We had followed each other many times in our career because he's in sports, sports journalism. So he's also moves around and he's in the media business still is. So he had followed me. That was his turn to follow me to the Bay Area. And so then it was my turn to come back to Vegas because he had a job here at ESPN in Las Vegas. Uh, That was great. And then it also afforded me the opportunity to not work and to go to culinary school, which totally made sense because, I mean, hello, like this is why we're having this conversation. Las Vegas is one of the food capitals of the world. And so I knew that being here, I could also easily transfer into a job in a restaurant somewhere. So that's why we came back. And that's how I ended up in culinary school in Las Vegas. Actually also went to the same culinary school as Louis CSN. It's community college here in Las mm-hmm. Vegas that has an amazing culinary program. I um, went to the photography program though. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Right but, next door though. But to the same point that like, yeah. it's amazing. Right. People don't realize that you can get that standard quality of education, education. Yeah. At a very low price compared to going to a private school, like a, and I'm not even going to mention the names, but you know, the names of like sure, of culinary yeah. schools mm-hmm. that are private and they're amazing, but I would have spent 20 times as much. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And obviously things have worked out. But before we get into uh, each of you, the, the the kitchen work, which I do want to talk about, as well as your podcast, a bunch of other stuff. Lorraine, do you see connections and maybe it's stories, I don't know, between your work as a journalist and your work as a chef or your work in the hospitality industry generally? Definitely. So when I started, I was really interested in the food aspect of it because I was far behind everybody else. And so I was really concentrating on the cooking, but I realized very shortly, like, so about six months into my career as a cook, as a professional cook, I got into Bizarre Meat by Jose Andres at the Sahara. That's where I met Louie and actually a, a good portion of my culinary friends at this point that were still very close family from Jose Andres restaurant. But they taught me, and it's Jose Andres saying that great food tells a story. And so when I heard that, I was like, oh my God, Avi, like, why didn't I think of this? (laughs) Like great food tells a story. It's absolutely true. And the restaurant is just as much about food as it is about telling the story of the dishes and the food and the cultures behind it. So I kind of just took it from there and was like, well, geez, I could tell a story just like I did in journalism. And I could tell a happy story instead of like a depressing, horrifying Awful story. I could be telling a story that actually makes people happy and makes them want to come back and see me again, as opposed to, oh my God, keep this reporter out of here. Like, I don't want to talk to this person. I don't want to talk to my this family person. member just died. I don't want to talk to them. Instead, they're at the happiest point in their life, which is with food in their mouth. 
So, and that was like one of the benefits of Bazaar that Louis could talk about too, is like, it's a huge open kitchen. I know you haven't been yet. You need to go. I know Um, it's on the list. Let me tell you. It's such a show there. Um, And you can actually walk up to in a good time, not when they're crazy busy and talk to the cooks there about what they're doing. And they know the stories. They know the stories behind the farmers, the the meats, all, all kinds of stuff, super interesting stuff. And the servers there are also very well trained to tell the story of food, which is, you know, from start to finish, you know, how it's raised, why it's important to that culture, like why we use these certain ingredients, how it's paired with different wines. So um, there's a lot of parallels. I love it. Louis, Louis, what can you tell us about about Bizarre Meat? And I know you had mentioned one dish in another uh, recording that you had sent me that was, oh. that had, was it cotton candy and foie gras? Is that right? <laughs> yeah, probably <laughs> cotton candy and foie gras, yeah. That's yeah. A, that's a famous uh, Jose Andres signature dish that's uh, not only served at Bizarre Meat. I think all bazaars, right? Yeah. I think so. It's definitely in Miami and it was in LA when it was open. It's just in a different shape, basically. Ours is kind of like in, in a little tiny cotton candy with like a little bowl of foie gras or a cube of foie gras in, in the middle. Okay. Yeah. That's amazing. It's a taste and, explosion. Yeah. It, it's, so it's, it's salty and sweet at mm-hmm. the same time. And it just and people works. are like, oh, liver, duck liver. But once they have it, oh, you know, they're like, oh, can it, can I get six more of those? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's crazy. Well, I'd love to hear from each of you on the storytelling theme, and let's talk about your podcast, which I've been consuming a lot of lately, Two Sharp Chefs and a Microphone. Over to you. Tell us about it. What is it and what are you looking to achieve with that show? So we started originally. Um, so we were talking about how Louie and I, we met at Bazaar. We knew that we always wanted to do something together. We're very different people, if you can't tell. <laughs> but I think it's like Bert and Ernie kind of, you know what I mean? It's like all the great pairs are opposites. And so Louie and I are very different people and we have different skill sets. And she knew that I came from a background of journalism and broadcasting. And she was also interested in like, you know, writing and broadcasting and telling a story, but she came from a background of technical, which is, you know, editing, shooting, like whether it's video or photography. And so we were like, there's gotta be a way to put these things together. And so Mm -hmm. we talked about it for years. I want to say like two years, three years, a long time. And then the pandemic happened and a few other (laughs) things actually right before the pandemic, it was, um, Oh, I had a shoulder injury, a really mm-hmm. bad shoulder injury, um, where I fell at the most recent ro- restaurant that I worked at, separated my shoulder. It, shoulder surgery is terrible. Mm. Takes like six months to a year to recover on. And so I could not physically work in a restaurant. I still can't in the sense of I can't do that 60 hour shift anymore. So I had to rethink how I was going to do stuff. And Louis was like, hello, like, why don't we start this podcast? So we were Mm -hmm. having some, we were having some thoughts about it, like how we would do this, what it would be about. And then the ultimate thing happened, which was, uh, we call him our jefe, Chef Jose Andres. He made a call out to people to celebrate the life of Anthony Bourdain. It was almost the one year anniversary of his death. And instead of just talk about the tragedy around it, which is a whole nother thing. I mean, we could have a whole couple podcasts about that. Let's celebrate him and let's celebrate his legacy. And Louis and I were like, you know what? What a great opportunity this is. Not only to address that, to celebrate Anthony Bourdain's life and his ability and his enthusiasm to bring people together through food and culture, but also to address that issue. The, I don't know if I want to say negative, but the major issue that we're having in our industry, which is a mental health issue. Mental health issue. 
So it was those two things, like let's celebrate his life, but let's also talk about how we got here. And so we were, it, it gave us the opportunity to have these like happy, awesome stories that were like positive and the great things about food and culture. And it also gave us the opportunity to bring up these more difficult topics in a way that came from people who were actually working in the industry. It's a lot it. to unpack. <laughs> yes, it is a lot to unpack. And it's a lot to it's a lot to take in, but it's important work because I think as consumers, people who haven't worked in restaurants, they just have no idea really. And, and the stories are coming out thanks to podcasts mm. like yours and other initiatives, but it is such a tough business. Louie, your thoughts on, on, on what the podcast means to you? So what the podcast means to me? Well, I always wanted to work with Lorraine verified we were actually thinking of a video series Mm -hmm. at first right but you know as chefs we were working Mm full-time side by side and she was working at joe's at the time and i was working at bazaar so there were no intersections per se of our Mm -hmm. uh, schedule so i thought hmm what's like something kind of low maintenance that we can get into that we don't have to travel much we can do locally or we can do like remote and the podcast was born. Yeah. And also, um, paying back to the Anthony Bourdain um, story, I met him a month before his death. And wow. um, I really wouldn't have suspected. Um, I was traveling through Bali. I see a tall guy with silver white hair. And I'm like, there's only one guy with <laughs> that tall right? silver white <laughs> hair. I have to stop. And I'm, I'm glad I actually did. I stopped my driver, had a brief conversation with him, took a selfie. And I was just like, so just starstruck. Yeah, I, I really thought that that was kind of um, kind of a sign for me to kind of it was. step into. I'm not trying to fill his shoes, but kind of like do a little bit to fill in the gap that he left. Fill in the gap. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, on, on the most recent episode of yours that I've listened to, it was with Vincent Rotolo of uh, Good Pie, which is a favorite spot of mine in Las Vegas. I can't wait to to get back. Um, but you were speaking with him about mentorship. And Lorraine, you mentioned one of yours earlier. It sounds like, not not surprisingly, Anthony Bourdain was a, a mentor in a sense to both of you. Lu- Louis, any more thoughts on that? Other mentors in your culinary career? And, and are you mentoring anybody yourself these days? These days, I kind of mentor a lot of more photography students or food photography students or people that want to start a food blog and stuff like that. But when I was in Bazaar, I was the solo person in the seafood room. And they would usually stick a newbie with me because, like, I'm good at teaching. (laughs) I'm good at teaching. It's chill. She's patient. There's only the two of us. Yeah. And um, the thing about Bazaar, it's not like one specific mentor, but it's it's a whole group of mentors. So it's a peer mentorship. Everybody just gets advice and gives advice. They're not like, oh, go to the one guy, you know, go to the boss. Yes, go to the boss when, you know, you have like a pressing question and stuff like that. But it's usually like we have eyes on each other. So it's a peer we hold, to peer. Right. We hold each other to a, a certain standard. And when somebody's kind of like, you know, falling behind a little bit, we, we kind of help them up. And uh, make sure that he's like running alongside the rest of the team. It's mm-hmm. so interesting to hear that the the kitchen that I know best in Las Vegas is Bouchon at the uh, the Venetian. I've been so lucky to stage there a few times, and uh, it sounds like a similar environment. Everybody yes. was very very supportive. What struck me the first time I did it was that everybody called everybody chef, 
Yep. And mm-hmm. it, it just, it felt so welcoming, so inclusive. I don't know if that's a, an American Canadian distinction, but it was, it was definitely new to me, but it's great to hear that there are other wonderful kitchens that have that team environment, right? So what's interesting yeah. about the point that you made about Bouchon, obviously a Thomas Keller restaurant, the first executive chef there, who is my other mentor, David Thomas, he's now way up in the food chain of Think Food Group, which is the corporation, um, Jose Andres Corporation. David Thomas is from Thomas Keller teachings. So he used to be the chef at Ad Hoc uh, in Yountville, sister restaurant to French Laundry. It's the uh, sort of the more chill version of French Laundry, (laughs) but with the same quality of food and Thomas Keller as well. And so he comes from the Thomas Keller tenets, yeah, which are, you know, very strict when it comes to like cleanliness and beautiful cuts and perfect plating. Sense of urgency is a big thing in Thomas Keller's kitchen. It's on his wall when you go to French Laundry, big sign in metal. Um, and it's in all his restaurants. And David Thomas, he really, Chef David Thomas, really pushed those ideals onto us. And his thing in that kitchen at Bazaar Meat was, and this has gone on forever. If you want to move to another station, you know, you want to go from like, you know, Guard Manger to like the hotline or hotline to the grill, which is like, you know, where the badasses work. You need to not only be ready for it and learn it on the on your time, your own time, but you also need to teach somebody to replace from you. either another, yeah, from either another station or from your station to take your place to become you at that station. And so (laughs) it really gives you a responsibility. And I know at the time it's like stressful too, because you're like, who am I going to teach? Like, you know, but (laughs) it's a great discipline because not only are you getting ahead, but you're helping someone else get ahead. Right. Right. And just brings, drives everybody together. Makes you more of a team. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I really, I want to talk about another one of your recent episodes or use that as a springboard to this discussion. And this was your interview with chef Nicole Brisson. Am I saying that right? Brisson. 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 Okay. Nicole Brisson. And I know of her from her work as the exec chef at Carnivino in the, in the Venetian home, as I was telling both of you in an email to, I think the, the best steak I've ever had. And she's done a bunch of other things in Vegas and is getting set to open two new restaurants in resorts world. But what I wanted to ask you about was, um, and you asked Chef Nicole about this on, on your podcast, the focus on heritage breed animals. And I think that's really important for a variety of reasons. And I love that discussion because I had recently interviewed a very small scale farmer here on the Sunshine Coast of British Columbia who focuses on heritage breeds. And I just love that connection between my tiny little town of, of 5,000 people and uh, the bright lights of Las Vegas and the focus on heritage breeds. So please tell us about that. Why is you know your thoughts, either based on your discussion with Chef Nicole or generally, why, why are heritage breeds important in, in the culinary world? Well, it kind of goes back to the beginning of our discussion, which is if you want a good product, not only that tastes good, but also is good for the environment and good for all of us, you need to really think about how food is, how it's bred, um, how it's slaughtered, how it's produced, like all steps of the production. And so with heritage breed meats, they go back to generations ago and to their old practices of breeding. Now they do breeding, but they also have to be able to mate on their own. So I know it's kind of like a very involved and specific conversation, but a lot of your meat, um, especially in the United States is inseminated. 
So mass produced. They, they're mass produced and they're inseminated. So a lot of these breeds of chickens, turkeys, cows, pigs, they can't even mate on their own. They're at the point where seen, they can't even do that. Yeah. Have you seen um, how chickens are produced? How, no. how eggs are kind of like just lined up in shelves and then wheeled into an incubator that simulates a hen rocking them back okay. and forth. Oh, and then they inoculated yeah. in their shell. And when they hatch, they immediately go into a conveyor belt. Right. And then, they, you know, the weak ones get tossed out and so on and so forth. And God knows what happens to the weak ones actually at that point. Right. So, yeah. so specifically, up. specifically yeah. to heritage breeds, they grow slower. Um, they grow at a normal rate. They live longer. And, you know, this goes back to what Louie and I always talk about. They taste better. Taste better. <laughs> full they stop. Taste better. So if you don't care about anything else in the entire world, you only care about yourself. You are going to get a high quality, great tasting meat, whether it's pork or it's beef or whatever it is, it's going to taste better. And Louie and I had this discussion with Nicole and we've had it a few times actually about you can taste a slaughter. I know that sounds crazy, but like, and, and Muslim culture, like they really believe in this as well with halal meat. They believe that meat has to be slaughtered humanely Mm -hmm. and that you can taste the pain and the hell that they go through and the torture in the meat. It's not as tender. It's not as delicious. This is a discuss. It's somewhat disgusting discussion, but at the same time, it's a necessary one. It's absolutely a necessary Mm -hmm. one. Because if you're going to eat meat, which you obviously don't have to, to live, um, we know that now. If you're going to eat meat, you need to know how it's produced and you need to know how it's slaughtered. Otherwise, you shouldn't be eating it. Or how it's caught. Yes, the seafood, you know, or how it's caught. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Is there a growing, it it sounds like there is, Chef Nicole would be probably, I think, at the vanguard of this, but is Vegas picking up steam on this, generally speaking? Because, and I ask that because much as I love Vegas, and I absolutely do, one of the criticisms of the city is um, it's a bit stressful on the environment, right? We've got a whole lot of electricity and we've got a whole lot of water demands in the Mojave Desert. So is it, is our heritage breeds helping maybe in a small way, at least to improve the scene in Vegas? I'm sure because also it goes back to, again, we always end up going back to Bazaar, but same situation where we knew our farmers, the, you know, from Jose on down to the cooks from top to bottom, we were educated in where the farms were. We knew the city that they were raised. We knew how that they were raised. We knew what kind of cows were used for each meat. When you work in the grilled kitchen, that's a requirement. So this is not a normal practice in a normal restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, it's steak. <laughs> it's a ribeye steak. <laughs> right, it's right, a filet, right, yeah, you know, yeah. whatever it is. They're not as concerned about that kind of stuff. And I feel like Jose Andres is definitely at the forefront when it comes to that as well. But Louie and I will both tell you that if you really want a unique Las Vegas experience, one that's very local to our city and you want to live like a Las Vegan, go downtown. So it used to be the place where it was kind of like random and sketchy. And there are exactly the word coming to mind. There are still parts like that, but every great city, like in New York City or Chicago or San Francisco, has those sketch zones. Mm -hmm. But that's where you find the good food. But I also think having said that, that it has cleaned up quite a bit and you will notice the difference when you go there. There are tourist attractions there. So you still will enjoy those types of things, you know, casinos and, you know, some cheap eats and some fun stuff and shows and those kinds of things. But there's this burgeoning food scene on Fremont. You go east of Fremont Street and you will find so many heritage breed meats. You will find people using 
only or mostly urban gardens, small scale farming, all these things that, you know, didn't seem like a Vegas thing are so a Vegas thing over there. You'll find the best plant-based restaurants. And it's just some a place to explore. You, I, there's one thing that I want to push for Vegas. Obviously, enjoy the Strip. There's so many great things about it, especially if you want to do fine dining. But if you want a Las Vegas experience and you want to support our local economy, go downtown. They're, they're all relatively within like a short walk of walking. Other, so yeah, it's a walking distance. I've had some wonderful experiences there. One, not not really at the leading edge of the culinary scene, but I got to say, I super enjoyed this experience. We went to Hugo's Cellar in the Four Queens in the cool. basement. And it was, yeah, as old school as old school Very gets. Cool. Yeah. Um, if you want as old school as old school gets, go to the Mob Museum. Oh, yes. I have not done that yet. Yeah. So downstairs, there's like a secret room. You just you have to follow them on Instagram and they'll tell you whatever the most recent password is and you'll have to know it to get in. Okay. Yeah. I, I love uh, it. And it's got the old school drinks. It's got like the mob feel. That's definitely similar to that. Okay. Yeah. 100%. Uh, that museum is not to be consumed in two hours either. It's amazing. I, I, it's if like you maybe a half a day. Enjoy oh, wow. mafia it movies. Small. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy cool. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely going to check it out. I've been to the Neon Museum a couple of times. A little Very cool field, too. And yeah, yeah. Just, just loved it. Louis, I, I was going to save this to, toward the end, but we're, we're sort of into it now. Any other um, specific picks could be downtown, could be, could be on the strip, wherever, where, where would you send people for? for oh, wow. Yeah, I know. It's, I know it's, it's so hard. And it, it could be fine dining, could be whole. It was someplace that I'm not going to know about by, you know, just Googling uh, Vegas restaurants. Yeah, well, Chinatown has like a nice oh, little yes. mix of um, restaurants there. They mm. have Ideo Tapas, which is a Spanish mm. tapas. And, and they're like, they're like almost like a baby replica of Bizarre Meat. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the general manager, or the ex-general manager of Bizarre Meat owns um, Ideo Tapas. And um, he's, his co-owner is like Oscar Amador. And he is such a great, like creative, inventive Spanish chef. Prices awesome. are great. Yeah. In the town. There's Brian Howard Sparrow and Wolf. There's Kaibu's District One, which is mm-hmm. Vietnamese cuisine. Um, there's also Partage, which is which is fine French dining. Mm-hmm. So like, you'll find all of these in Chinatown. In Chinatown. And that's yes. also uh, Spring Mountain Road. Is that right? Yes. That's the yeah, main right. part of it. Is the Spring main Mountain part Road. of it. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's gotten so, yeah. very large and beyond Spring Mountain Road, but uh, if you go to Spring Mountain Road, you can't go wrong. I mean, okay. and even like the mom and pops in there, like uh-huh. for ramen, for Korean, like and and Chinatown's kind of a misnomer when it comes to Las Vegas's Chinatown. It's, it's <laughs> more of an Asia town with some like European friends there, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. <laughs> right. It's a, yeah, I've spent a little bit of time there, and from what I saw, it looks again like the mom museum. You could spend days or weeks there, right? Yeah. Yeah. 100. You got to check it out, you know? Yeah. yeah. Let's get back to the industry a, a, a little more broadly speaking. We've talked about some of the challenges in the industry. Can I ask you both please to comment on initiatives outside of kitchens and how they are helping? And, and a couple that I know you've been involved with are the Women's Hospitality Initiative and Three Square. So mm-hmm. we'd love to hear what's going on there. Yeah. Do you want to take Women's Hospitality Initiative? Yeah, sure. So we're both involved with Women's Hospitality Initiative. The Women's Hospitality Initiative um, is founded in Las Vegas. And their whole thing was this, they're trying to improve the statistic because it is found that only 7% 
for female chefs actually become head chefs or restaurateurs. Wow. So the organization actually provides empowerment, learning, advocacy, um, mentorship for females who want to progress within the culinary and hospitality industry. And it's founded by one of Louis' mentors, Elizabeth Plow. Yeah. Elizabeth okay. Plow. Huge yeah. restaurateur in Canada and in America. Yes. Yes. I was going to say, I saw on the website Elizabeth's picture there and know that she's mm-hmm. done some work with the Park Casino property here in, in Vancouver yes. or uh-huh. across the water there. Yeah. Vancouver. She has a house okay. in Vancouver as well. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. So she lives dual. Lives dual. Okay. I must try to get her on the show then. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 She'd be absolutely great. And, uh, and sorry, Lorraine, please. Yeah. yeah um, give us your thoughts. So the one thing I also want to say about the women's hospitality initiative is that percentage is scarier when you know how many actually graduate from culinary school. So yes, oh. that percentage is so low. It's 7%, 6%. It's somewhere around there of women at the heads of kitchens, but more than 50% of graduates from culinary school are women. So it's not a lack of women in the industry, which many people would point to that right away. Like, well, maybe there's not as many to choose from. No, no, no. There are <laughs> many more to choose from than males. Right. Something else is happening. Something else is happening. And there are a lot of systemic issues there, but regardless of what those issues are, and we do need to address them, there is an issue. So because mm-hmm. of that issue, we need to support um, ourselves right now and others who are not getting the same attention as our male counterparts who are also very lovely, but we need help. So we need to help each other. Three Square. So Three Square is the largest food pantry in Nevada. Um, I'm on the Culinary Council of Free, Three Square. Uh, they have quite a few chefs on that board. And the reason is because they want us to get the word out about food insecurity. As we know, most of us, um, food insecurity is a major issue. Uh, before the pandemic, it was one in six children that went to bed hungry in America. Uh, mm. That number, unfortunately, has gone down to one or one to two, one to three. Which if you think about, you know, and I just get chills, like thinking about, I just got chills right now saying that out loud. I mean, if you think about how many children, you know, and you think about one out of every three of those children has at least one meal a day that they don't get, it's disgusting. And it's totally, it's a huge failure in our system. And I, I feel like, um, and many people feel this, that chefs as, as people who make food for a living and who have the privilege of cooking for people that can afford very expensive, very amazing fine meals. Um, we should also have the ability and the responsibility to make sure that people eat who don't have that privilege. The other 99% or more of people who can't afford that dining experience, which is amazing and totally awesome and necessary for many reasons. Um, It's an art form, but it's just, we shouldn't have these things where people can enjoy that, but other people can't even afford to eat breakfast. Um, And so that's the concern that's addressed through three square. There are some awesome offshoots of three square because believe it or not, they get so many donations in food that a lot of it unfortunately goes to waste because they can't distribute it fast enough (laughs) because a lot of it comes from grocery stores and things where they have a lot of extra. And it's, that's another sad and ridiculous thing that that happens, that there's all this food and people need to eat yet people aren't getting it. And so there are some offshoots of that that have happened during the pandemic. One of them was LV town fridge, super amazing, tiny little charity here in Vegas um, that we talk with on our podcast. They 
take a lot of that food from those distributions and other people also from their kitchens, their home kitchens, they're donating food into these fridges. There are three or four of them now around different parts of the city. Um, This is pretty common in some bigger cities as well in the country, like Berkeley, San Francisco, Chicago, New York, they have these town fridges and people can just take whatever they want out of them. So they, they're constantly filled again by members of the community, as well as these smaller food projects. People look forward to it. And there are small time people and cooks and chefs that are actually cooking food also that are labeled and uh, And into the fridges. And like, there are people, volunteers that go and make sure that it's being, you know, rotated and, you know, that things are still good. So that's very interesting. Another interesting one that Louie and I were both involved with is 24 meals. They were also taking out those types of foods and donations, and they were giving them to people like us. And we were creating 24 meals for people. And it was sort of a fun thing too, because it was like a chop situation where it was a grab bag of stuff and you had to just come up with whatever you could come up with. So it was like a competition slash charity and people were benefiting from it. And then people could sign up for these meals and they're still doing it right now, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just interesting how uh, some of these other offshoots, smaller charities have happened during the pandemic. And there's also Delivering with Dignity, which is actually a really great organization to work with um, if you're a restaurant owner. Mm -hmm. And I know a couple of um, restaurants in town, our friends from Valencian Gold, Honey Salt, as well as Graffiti Bow, Mm -hmm. have uh, worked with them. So what happens with them is that they, they take food, like from Albertsons and all that, and they collect it. And then, um, they ask the restaurants to prepare it and the restaurants get paid to prepare the food. So it was a means for them to be able to remain open mm-hmm. during the pandemic right. and, and, and emplo- employ people. And keep employees. It's so great to hear that these initiatives are happening. There's a lot of them in Vegas, it sounds like, which is great. I, I spoke a couple of weeks ago to a chef in Madison, Wisconsin, and he started uh, an operation there called Little John's Kitchen. And it's um, really encouraging, to your point, Lorraine, they, they recover food that would otherwise wind up in the right. landfill. And then they're, they're employing chefs and cooking it. And it's, a, it's also a pay-what-you-can restaurant. So, so I good. Love that. Yeah, so good to hear about these initiatives across the yeah. country. And there's one one other thing, that, and it's not like for human, the food specifically that we recover. There's a pig farm up north that collects waste. And yes. I actually been to this pig farm okay. and I've seen how much waste and how, how many hogs are there. There's a lot of pigs in that pig farm. Right. So it's- these... The, the food's cooked in these like large industrial cookers and then fed as meal to these pigs. To the pigs. Is that, the, I remember hearing about an operation, I think it was on the Spicy Eyes podcast uh, a couple of years ago. And it Sonia! Was, and, yeah, Sonia <laughs> and Christy. Yeah, um, yeah, and they were talking about a farm, maybe it's the same one that recovered food, I think from mm-hmm. buffets. It probably is. Yeah. yeah, it probably is. Yeah. Because they do the MGMs. Okay. Right. MGM buffets. Yeah. yeah, they do. And um, now they're selling meat too. So look them up. They're Las Vegas livestock. Okay. Yeah. And actually one more thing I'd like to mention about on that vein, which I think interest would be interesting, especially to people from not from here and not from America would be that the Raiders came into town uh, yes. and through some controversy, but 
now what we know personally is they've done an amazing job as a team and as an organization to really address a lot of these issues. And one of them, to Louis's point, is they also take their compost. Uh, so they don't waste there. It's almost zero waste. They're feeding the players. Um, so we know the chef there that's in charge, Honest Hospitality, Gary Lamort. He is the chef in charge of the whole operation of feeding the Raiders. And his cooks and his chefs, they they also purvey from local farms, small local farms all the time to, to feed their players and up their nutrition. But interestingly, on the side, they're also taking all of their waste and they are bringing it to Zazzar Bloom Eco Farm, which is a small farm here to use for composting. So it's pretty interesting and environmentally sound and just completely random. I love mm-hmm. it. That's, yeah. that's fantastic. Of all of the things that I'd heard about the Raiders moving to exactly. Las Vegas, that was not one of them. And that's the best thing ever. I'm not a sports fan, but I love that story. But you should be a fan <laughs> of the organization just for yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah. If they're doing things right like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. Just a couple more questions for each of you. One of my goals with, uh, with Chef Timoni is to get stories out of the kitchen because as we were talking about before, the hours demands can be crazy. People spend 16 hours working in tight quarters. Often there are really good stories. On, I'll tell you one uh, of mine, or and it's really friends of mine, and, and it was your podcast that reminded me of this, and it was your discussion of cooking eggs at brunch <laughs> and how that can be so traumatic for cooks, and I don't think people understand that. Well, two yeah. friends of mine in Vancouver, they were working the brunch shift, and I would do the dinner service, so I would come in toward the tail end of brunch, and the poor cooks on the brunch line looked like every time, like they had PTSD or something. It oh, was just, it, they, do. So, they do. They <laughs> do. It's, so, it's so hard. And they said, you know how finicky people can be about their dinner food? That is nothing compared to how finicky people can be about eggs. And so two of the cooks, you know, I don't, I want it uh, soft, but not too soft, medium, but Ugh. not too medium. Well, two of the cooks, they had had it up to their eyeballs with requests for specific kinds of eggs being or eggs being poached in specific ways. And they kept hearing requests for medium hard. And they're like, mm-hmm. there, there is no medium hard. And so yeah, they, medium or hard. Yeah. <laughs> so they each got massive tattoos of little egg frowny faces oh my God. <laughs> on their legs that says wow. medium hard underneath it. That's so, hilarious. Yeah. Great story. <laughs> So that's just one example. If if you've each got a, a kitchen story to share, I would I would love to hear it. <laughs> so I got one for you. I'll let Louis think for a second. I sure. I this one always gets me. Um, as somebody who I rarely eat steak, believe it or not. I rarely eat meat nowadays. I'm very plant-based for the most part. Um, I have an upside down pyramid in my diet. So I eat very little red meat and a lot of vegetables. Not fully plant-based, not vegan by any means, but just trying to lessen my consumption for my health and for the environment. So having said that, when I do have a steak, I need it to be good. You know, I it's that's one thing. It's just like, I want it to be cooked to the right temperature and all this stuff. So I understand the need for having steak the way that you want it. I get it. However, I've worked at a lot of steak restaurants and you get the craziest steak orders of all time, but my favorite of all. And I was angry that day. And now it's just funny. It's like, I never, I should have realized it was going to be a funny story later on. Very popular uh, Vegas restaurant does really well. Thousand covers kind of restaurant, probably the most covers on the strip. And so it's busy. There's that too. And so it's just like to get these like really specific requests, it's kind of annoying in the first place, but 
They have a lot of amazing things about that restaurant. But one of the things that bothers some chefs about it is that you have to do exactly what the customer says for the most part. So say 99.9% of things you've got to do, even if you feel like you're against it, it's crazy. It's absolutely horrifyingly disgusting, which is this one. This guy from Texas, take it how you want it. He was from Texas. He had a huge hat. He insisted on a porterhouse steak. Okay. Very large cut of steak, which is not easy, honestly, to cook to the way that somebody might like it because it's complicated. It can be complicated, especially for a new cook. Porterhouse steak. Well done. Not charred, which is like, like, so you have to wrap it in foil basically to like not get it to char, but you're just killing a dead animal. But anyways, then he wanted us to melt cheddar cheese over the top of it after after it gets better with a side of ketchup. Just take that in a little bit. The whole order was just like, and I thought, honestly, at that point, you know, like you think the server's like playing with you because like we (laughs) spend so many hours together, you know, like we joke around with each other. We fuck around with each other all the time. So I thought they were just fucking around with me. I didn't even do it for a little bit. And they were just like, no, that's (laughs) that's an actual order. That's a real ticket. I was like, and I'm like talking to the GM, like, do I really have to do this? And he's like, yeah, you got to do it. You got to do it. We gave it to him. Like, he's not eating this thing. And he ate it. (laughs) And he He ate ate all of it. Yeah, he wow. said it was wonderful. We did a great job. Yeah. Oh, very well. Compliments to the kitchen. Shit show. Wow, that is a great story. <laughs> and and apart from the fact that he was from Texas, I was going to ask if he had gone on to become president at one point. But anyway. <laughs> 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 I guess and not. And then he threw paper towels at the restaurant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Louis, any war story you would like to share? War story. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is kind of just like a PSA to everybody out there. Just be really nice to your service staff and, uh, ah. you know, your cooks. When you make requests, don't make it too hard because chances are, like, any, any, like, little fine print and if we're busy – we're going to resent your order, especially if you send it back multiple times. There's a higher chance that somebody's going to get pissed off and, and do something with your food. It doesn't Hopefully happen. They won't. Hopefully they yeah. won't. And I haven't seen it very often, but I have seen it sometimes. Yeah. It doesn't happen in, in high-end kitchens. Cannot happen it, in a fine kitchen. Cannot cannot happen in fine dining Those kitchen. middle range ones? Ooh. Yes. But you know, back in the day, I used to I used to work for this um, steakhouse, and literally, I think that steak was um, sent back a couple of times, like three times or four times, or yeah, a lot of times, and you know, like a regular one. So this cook grabs a steak from the window and proceeds to wipe his shoes with it. <gasps> Just sticks it back up on the pass, and then it comes back out. And then the guest says, oh, my God, this is the best steak I've ever had. <laughs> you said war story, man. Well, I did. Yeah. I did. Fair enough. I got what but, I asked for. Thank yeah. you. I think. Just, wow. <laughs> just be kind. You know, be kind. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, there's, there's a really great way to tell your server what you need. Like, 
Yeah, like don't be afraid to change your order. Yeah. That's not what right. Louis is saying. It's like no, if you want specifics, that's fine. And especially like we take as much as that they can be stressful to us. We take allergies mm-hmm. very seriously. Of especially, course. Especially again yeah. in the fine dining kitchens, we take them very yeah. seriously to the point of like mm-hmm. separating like you know trays and separating workspaces. And we're very serious about that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And as a profession, this doesn't happen that often, mm-hmm. but it can happen. And even mm-hmm. as a chef who's dining at a restaurant, I think about this sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Don't you, Louis? Like when I'm like, hmm, should I yeah, Who's that? Yeah, like, who's, yeah. Who's so, who is cooking? No, you know what? I, you don't I know everybody in every kitchen. So. Right. No, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's great advice. I, obviously, that's an extreme story. I hope that's an extreme story. But, the, is point extreme is, story. Mm-hmm. but the point is well taken, which is like just talk to people be good to people Respect right and people and, be kind yeah, yeah and and i think I, i've explored this idea a little bit on the show in other episodes i think do that if not just to be a good person do it selfishly because you're going to get better service exactly. right mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah do that awesome. do that well louis lorraine thank you so much for joining me this has been a super fun discussion can't wait to share it with my with my mm-hmm. listeners where can they follow along with what uh, with what you two are up to well, at Two Sharps Chefs on Instagram, that's probably our most active page. We also have a Two Sharp Chefs and a Microphone Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find us on YouTube at Two Sharp Chefs. Separately, I have a website called FromChefWithLove.com where you can find cooking videos and some more interesting blogs and stories. Um, Louis has LouisVicta.com. You mm-hmm. can also follow us separately on Instagram as well. Yeah. At that the is- chef photographer for me. And okay. at Lorraine chef for t- me. Okay, yeah. chef photographer and chef Lorraine. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you both so much. It's been a it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. It was so nice. Thank you so much for yeah. this conversation. Thanks for having us. I cannot wait for the border to reopen to get my second jab of the vaccine and to get back to Las Vegas. Thank you, Louis and Lorraine, for joining me today. It was a great talk, and I'm really looking forward to meeting you in person once I can travel again. As always, thank you for being here, too. I really do appreciate you spending some time with Chef Demoni. If you're enjoying the show, please tell a food-loving friend about it, and please rate, review, and subscribe to Chef Demoni so that you will always receive the latest episode. Canadian reviews on Apple Podcasts are actually outpacing American reviews, just saying. So wherever you are, if you like the show and decide to take a few minutes to write a review, thank you in advance. It means a lot. Also, please feel free to get in touch with me directly if you've got a question or a comment for the show, perhaps a guest suggestion or a topic idea. Do get in touch. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Those are all at Cheftimony. You can find me on LinkedIn under my name, Graham McLennan. And you can always send me an email. Those go to Graham at Cheftimony.com. All right, that is all for this week. Thank you for being here. I'm Graham McLennan, and I'll see you two Fridays from now, right here on Cheftimony. <laughs>